Welcome to church. My name is Pete, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here as well. Uh, look, I just want an honest show of hands. Just put up your hands if you really don't care much for sport or the Olympics, and every time it's on in four years, you're like, who cares? Yeah, it's quite a lot of you, okay? Um, I've got good news for you. If you're not into the Olympics or sport in general, never fear, because every two years, there is what's now called the World Alternative Games. It's held in Wales. 35 sporting events you've probably never heard of. So, there's wife carrying. There's husband dragging. There's bathtubbing. There's finger jousting. Bog snorkeling. Worm charming. And my favorite, toe wrestling. The World Alternative Games. Aren't you glad you came to church today? It's a bit like... Judges chapter 17 and 18. How so? Well, the World Alternative Games is what's known as a parody. Have you heard of the word parody? Yeah? A parody is when you imitate, often you exaggerate something original, and you do it for for laughs, okay? For jokes. That's what a parody is. It's an imitation of original, often exaggerated from comic effect. Now, you probably have seen parodies in movies a lot. Those are some famous parody movies from my generation. No, they're going back a bit old. But the reason why I'm telling you about parodies is because, believe it or not, Judges chapters 17 and 18 parodies so many aspects of what's true and what's good and what's normal. So it parodies, for example, what it means to be God's people. It parodies what it means to worship God. It parodies what it means to be devoted to God and what it means to follow God. Uh, Which means that in these chapters, and you might have noticed it when Bill read it earlier, there's actually quite a lot of humor. It's deliberate humor. But it's also tragic. Because what we're talking about here, the stakes are high and the consequences are grave. You see, when you parody sports or movies, it doesn't really matter. But just imagine if you got into a marriage and it was a parody of a marriage. Or if you took a job at a new company, but it was a parody of an employment contract. Or if you made some financial investments, it was a parody of some real, of real investment. Or you'd enroll in a university or a college degree and it's not a real one, it's just a funny fake. Like no one wants that, right? There's some things in life, it really matters that you get it right. How much more so matters of God and life and heaven and hell? And why does it matter to us, these chapters, is because we're actually, believe it or not, we're actually in danger of the same things as the people being parodied here in Judges 17 and 18. And unless we're noticing it and unless we repent if we need to, there's actually terrible eternal consequences. So a quick context, we're actually, you know, towards the home, uh, the home stretch of our look through Judges, which we started like earlier this year. Um, way back, if you remember, Judges actually has two introductions or two prologues. And now we're going to see two epilogues, okay? So there's this week's and next week's. Now the key verses in all of these uh, last few chapters, and especially in our passage today and next week, is this, of course. 17 verse 6, as well as repeated again in 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That pretty much summarizes the rest of Judges. Okay, which means these two epilogues, these two ending chapters or sections, the, the, the thing that you'll see is chaos. 
If you want to summarize the big idea of these last two epilogues, it's chaos. Today, we're going to look at the religious chaos of 17 and 18. Next week, you'll look at the moral chaos of 19 to 21. So today's passage will show us how religious chaos is going to spread from Micah's house to a whole tribe. And that's kind of the outline. Why don't we pray and we'll get into it. Father God, even as we uh, read and hear about and listen to these slightly humorous but really quite tragic chapters, we pray that you will use your word to speak to us in our lives where we need to hear it so that we might worship you and follow you rightly in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So let's start with chapter 17, Micah's house. The key thing to notice is that whole parody idea. Notice what is being parodied. Uh, If you like, um, what are the bits in this chapter as you read it makes you think, well, that's good, but not like that. You know know what I mean? Like, that's good, but but it shouldn't be like that. Um, So for example, Micah and his mom, we start the, the, the story, right? Micah, this guy, he stole... He stole 1,100 silver shekels from his own mum, which, by the way, is over a million dollars in today's term. Uh, and also, 1,100 shekels, by the way, links us to last week. Um, last week, uh, if you remember the Samson-Delilah bit, uh, Delilah gets offered 1,100 shekels of silver from each of the five Philistine kings um, so that she could betray Samson. Anyway, there's just a bit of a, a link in numbers. But anyway, he steals like, over a million bucks from his mum. Uh, he decides to confess. He decides to return it. His mom just kind of forgives him like that, which is kind of weird as well. And then uh, the curse that she was going to pronounce, well, she doesn't want to curse his own son. She turns it into a blessing. All right, so, you know, what do you notice there? There's, there's, there's parody going on, right? There's a lot of, well, that's good, but that's not quite right either. Um, what's being parodied? A, 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 a son's love for his mother, right? That's a really weird way of loving your mom, I guess, stealing from her and then giving it back. Um, a, a repentance is being parodied. Like, do you ever get the sense that he's really sorry or is he just wanting to avoid a curse? Or... And then the mom's forgiveness, that's being parodied. It's like almost too quick. She, she turns it from blessing, curse to a blessing. Uh, and the forgiveness is also a little bit warped because you know what she does with the silver once he does return it. Um, in verse 3, she says, well, I want to dedicate it to the Lord. Well, that's good. But... Firstly, she says she wants to give it all to the Lord, but she actually only takes 200 of the 1,100 and does something with it. So what happens to the other 900? But then really bad is, of course, instead of honoring the Lord properly, she gives it back to her son and gets him to turn the silver into making some idols. All right, that's a, well, that's good, but not like that. Yeah, this is a parody. A parody of her devotion to the Lord, a parody of her desire to honor the Lord. Now, of course, it gets worse as we read. Micah, he takes those idols, he puts it at his shrine, and then he makes some religious garments and paraphernalia. He sets up his own sons as priests. In other words, he does a DIY, do-it-yourself center of worship, which, of course, becomes a parody of the real one. Then in verse 7, we meet uh, an unnamed Levite, uh, and a Levite is simply an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. And uh, if, you, if you remember, the, the tribe of Levi is the one tribe that's set apart by God who could actually legitimately be priests at God's sanctuary. So this Levite is wandering past Micah's house, which itself is a little bit suspect because you've got to ask the question and it doesn't answer, why was a Levite wandering around? Why wasn't he serving at the real sanctuary? 
But then, cut a long story short, as we read, Micah makes him, this Levite, his own household priest, serving at his own household sanctuary, which again is that parody, right? It's the, well, that's good. Like, it's good that he's a Levite. At least he's from the right tribe. But it shouldn't be like that, should it? Because he's not supposed to be a Levite serving at someone's private shrine. And then there's also, throw it in there, a parody of, a, of the father-son relationships. The chapter begins with a mother and son. It ends with a sort of parody of a father and son relationship. Um, verse 7, when we're introduced, he's a young man, so he's probably a lot younger than Micah. But Micah wants to make him like a father to him. But then he looks after him in verse 11 like one of his sons. It's, it's all a little bit twisted and all a bit confusing. And then the chapter ends. Okay, that's chapter 17. So what is going on in this funny, crazy chapter? Um, I, I use the word parody uh, a few times because it is meant to be funny. But actually, a better word, really a better word would be the word perversion. You know the word perversion? Yeah? See, what is a perversion? A perversion is a twisted, distorted corrupted form of something good. And that's actually what's going on here. It's not just a funny parody. It's actually a perversion. It's a twisting of all that is good in family life, in devotion to God, in worshiping God, in priesthood. It's a perversion of all the good things. And at the very heart of the problem, of course, is the problem of idolatry. You notice that, right? Right from the very beginning, when Micah's mom wanted to take that silver and devote it to God, but then gets him to make it into idols. Idolatry is there from the very beginning. But I want you to note something. The idols that Micah makes, they're not idols of another God. All right, that's not what's going on here. They were idols, or an idol, of the real God. Idols of the Lord, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In other words, this is a breaking of the second commandment, not the breaking of the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is, you can't make an image of the true God. This is the one we're talking about here. A breaking of the second commandment. Making images, idols, representations of the true God. Now, why is that a problem? Why is making an image of the true God just as bad as worshipping false gods. Because most of the time when we think of idolatry, we think of the first, don't we? Yeah? Worshipping gods that are not real. But actually, the Bible says it's just as bad to make an image of the true God and worship that. Why is that just as bad? Well, the obvious reason is, of course, there's something perverted, twisted going on when the creature makes a representation of the Creator. Like there's something upside down about we who are creatures creating something to represent the Creator. Right? That's, that's a perversion. But it's much more than that, isn't it? See, if you think about it, the moment that we make a representation of the true God, and whether that's an idol statue or even sometimes a picture, and you'll see that in some kinds of churches where you actually look at a picture or a representation of God or Jesus and you're tempted to worship it. The problem, the moment we do that, we contain God, don't we? We shrink God. We make Him fit a mold or an image that suits us. 
Tim Keller, the pastor from New York, helpfully says that anytime you depict or you make an image of God, what you're going to do is you're going to reveal part of his character or nature, but you're going to necessarily conceal another part. Anytime you make a representation of God, you're going to reveal some bits, but necessarily conceal others. So, I mean, look, a classic example is just look at your most famous uh, Instagram uh, kind of celebrities, all right, the influencers. Look at their feeds. They're very curated, aren't they? Very edited, very filtered photos. What are they showing? They're only showing you what they want you to see. It shows some parts, but it conceals what they think that they don't want others to see. Do you see what I mean? Even an Instagram photo does that. How much more an image or a representation of God? Do you remember um, Israel after they came out of Egypt and they were at Sinai and they made that calf idol, the golden calf? Do you know that was actually a golden calf to represent Yahweh, of the, the true and living God? Okay, again, breaking the second commandment, not the first. But you think, about, why did they make a golden calf? Well, because calves in that culture shows power. It was made out of gold because it shows worth. It's precious. So they were trying to show something about Yahweh, about God, that God is worthy and beautiful and powerful. But do you see, it shows some aspects of God's character, but it completely conceals the others. Because how can a golden calf show the righteousness of God or the love or the mercy of God or the fact that God is a personal God? Do you see? It can't capture that. It necessarily shrinks it down to what you want to see about God. And that's, of course, why the God of the Bible insists that we only worship Him and that that true religion is as He's revealed it, not as we choose it to be. So it's not a DIY thing. You can't do it yourself. God says no image, no statue. And it has to be at the place that He chooses, uh, with the priesthood and the manner of worship as he's decided. Now, I know how that sounds in our modern day and age where we've got religious pluralism, lots of different religions. It seems intolerant, doesn't it? But I want to suggest to you it's because biblical religion is, at the heart of it, a relationship. I want to suggest to you that any true relationship needs to have this as a factor. See, in a personal relationship with a real person, you can't just relate to that person however you want to relate to them, can you? Like, you cannot just pick and choose what aspects about another person that suits you, and you only relate to them on those terms. You don't get to do that. If it's a true relationship, it's based on revealing you as you truly are to the other person and the other person relating to you on the basis of what you've revealed and vice versa. Well, if that's the case with personal relationships, how much more so the relationship with the creator of the universe? It's got to be based on what he reveals, yeah? Not on what we pick and choose. And that's why what Micah did was such a perversion. But of course, it gets worse. Because as I said, it starts with a household problem, it becomes a tribal problem. So let's pick up the second, uh, second point I'm up to, and uh, we're going to pick up bits we haven't read before, not all of chapter 18, but let me just read some bits. It's on the overhead. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. 
So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go explore the land. So they'd entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, he has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. All right, so verse 1, we meet one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Dan. But we're already alert to a huge problem. It says this tribe, it didn't have a place to settle. Now, why didn't it have a place to settle? Because remember, God had given them all of the tribes, assigned them boundaries, given them land in the promised land of Canaan. Theirs, I don't have a map here, but the Danites, they were supposed to settle to the west, near the Mediterranean Sea. And they were commanded in the book of Joshua, which we looked at last year, to take the land, to settle in the land, to be fruitful in the land. But then in Judges chapter 1, if you remember all the way back, they, along with a bunch of other tribes, well, they didn't trust God, they didn't obey God, they didn't take their allotted land, their allotted inheritance. So now they were homeless. That's a problem. They should have done what they should have done, but now they're homeless. Now, instead of repenting, saying sorry to God, instead of trusting in God, obeying, and maybe taking the land they were supposed to take, we read here they're wandering around and around. And now they're wandering way out of their assigned land, okay? Now they're not in the west, they're up north. And they're looking beyond the borders of the promised land. This is not where God had assigned them, the city that they're looking at now. In fact, it wasn't where God had assigned to any tribe. And there they send out spies to try and take this city, Laish, which is a peaceful city, we read a couple of times, to make it theirs. You see what's going on here? Right? Again, we've got the idea of a parody. This is the, that's good, but shouldn't be like that. Um, it's, it's a perversion of something good. I mean, it's good that they want to settle. But not like this. And so you'll notice there's, there's like... You know, like they're spying, sending out spies for the land. Um, they're planning this conquest. They're asking God for guidance. All of those things actually sound a little bit familiar, right? It's a little bit like when Israel was spying out the land in the beginning of Joshua and, you know, asking God, should we take the land? It, it, it's all, they're all kind of good things, but they've been twisted. They've been perverted. It's not supposed to be like this. They're taking matters into their own hands. They're they're copying what's genuine, but then it's just this gross, exaggerated parody. And it, except now it's no longer funny. It's just tragic. Now, I don't have time to read the rest of the chapter, but it unfolds as expected. Um, this tribe, in fact, 600 warriors especially, well, they decide it's not just enough to get guidance from Micah's own household priest. After they spy out the land, they actually take Micah's idol. So Micah starts off by being the thief. Now Micah gets stolen from, a bit of irony. They steal all of Micah's idols, all of his paraphernalia. But of course, that's not enough. They convince this Levite to come with them, which of course, he's more than happy to do. He's just been promoted from household to tribal priest, which of course leaves Micah with nothing. Micah protests, but this is how it ends up. 
Verse 25, the day 19 answered, don't argue with us or some of the men may get angry and attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. So the day nights went their way and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against the people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burnt down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon, had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites built the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born up who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses and his sons, were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Now, if you know a little bit about Old Testament history, this is so tragic. It's so tragic. I mean, firstly, the poor people of Laish, a peaceful city, a secure people, they were collateral damage. But it's even more tragic when you notice those last few verses. Did you notice in verse 30, that unnamed Levi we met in chapter 17? Well, he's none other than Moses' own grandson. This is the great Moses. Only two generations later, his grandson becomes this priest who basically does his own thing. It reminds me of the quote, God only has children, no grandchildren. All right? Just because you're born in a Christian family, born in a Christian culture, born in a Christian country, does not make you Christian. Neither did Moses' grandson. Uh, and then, of course, the really tragic thing is, of course, this, uh, this, this perversion of a worship site with Micah's idol and Micah's priesthood, it doesn't just stay there for a little bit of time. It lasts for hundreds of years, we're told. When the kingdom splits, you may know a little bit about this, between north and south, it actually becomes one of the persistent places of idolatry in the northern kingdom. It actually is one of the big reasons why they get exiled and doomed. And so the tribe Dan not only becomes corrupted, it becomes such a source of corruption. I didn't notice this until a week or so ago, that if you go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 7, where there's a list of all of the redeemed tribes of Israel, the tribe of Dan is completely missing. A bit symbolic, isn't it? This tribe doesn't make it to heaven. It's very tragic. And then the last words of verse 31, all the while this was happening, this DIY sanctuary, DIY, guess where the true sanctuary was? The true place of worship at that time was in Shiloh, which isn't like all the way down the other end of Israel. It was actually pretty close geographically to the false one they set up. They could have just gone there. And so these two chapters end. It's a comical, tragic story of religious chaos. But it has, you see, consequences for hundreds of years and arguably, if you read Revelation 7, for all of eternity. Which is why we would be wise to be warned. So let's look at our lives. Firstly, the problem. So here's the thing, friends. Idolatry and the kind that we're looking at in Judges 17 and 18, it's not just a Micah problem 
a tribal problem. It's actually our problem too. Remember, there's the, the, remember the difference? There's the idolatry of worshipping other gods, but then there's the idolatry here, the idolatry of worshipping the true God in wrong ways. Now, both are dangerous for us, but the, the, that second one, in some ways, is more dangerous because it's more subtle. It's the one that we see here, and it's the one that I think we need to think about for a moment. Let's ask ourselves as followers of Jesus today or the church in the West, in what ways do we try to conform the true God to us? In what ways do we try to make worshipping and following God suit us, what's convenient for us, what's comfortable for us, what just comes naturally to us rather than how God has revealed himself? It may be that we start by rejecting aspects of God's character revealed in His Word. We reject them because they don't suit our current culture and our world's sensibilities. See, while we want a God who loves the broken and hurting, we don't want a God who is righteously angry at the hurt of our own brokenness and how that causes hurt to others, a God who will actually righteously judge sin. Right? Or, for example, we, we want a God who cares for the vulnerable and the voiceless in our society, but we don't want a God who cares so much about the most vulnerable, the unborn, the elderly, that he might have something to say about abortion and euthanasia. Now, I know they're not simple answers, but he does have something to say, and our culture doesn't want to hear a bar of it. We want a God who helps us flourish in loving relationships, but we don't want a God who wants our love to flourish so much that He actually has set up boundaries that are good when it comes to marriage and sexuality and gender. And again, these are not simple issues, and I want to remind you that we actually had a series on that just last month. But He does have something to say about that, a lot of which our culture just doesn't even want to hear. Do you see what I mean? We start setting up God in our own image when we go along with the things that our culture likes and we conveniently ignore the things that they don't like. But then on a more personal level, I find that I can make God in my own image when I'm happy to obey God in the areas that suit me and I ignore the areas that don't. See, a lot of us are happy, aren't we? Don't, we? don't we love the fact that God is forgiving and gracious and kind to us? But then it may be that the way you relate to others, especially when you're in a difficult relationship, a conflict, for example, reveals that actually you're judgmental and so lacking in grace and forgiveness. Do you see what, what happens when you do that? You believe and accept the forgiveness of God and the grace of God, and yet you lack grace in your relationship with others, something is wrong there, isn't it? Or for example, in church circles, we're mostly very happy to point out and call out sexual sin. We conveniently ignore, though, that Jesus says more about greed than he does about sex and how following Jesus might actually shape our spending habits and how materialistic we are. Do you see what we're doing again? We're taking the parts of God we like and ignoring the bits that don't suit us. And what that is, is making God into our own image. And by the way, when we do that, isn't it strange that God only 
pretty much ever agrees with us. He rarely rebukes or corrects us or challenges us because that's what idolatry is like. You end up creating God in an image that suits you. So he's not going to challenge and correct you. He's not going to make you uncomfortable. And a lot of times, it's very popular nowadays to make decisions, not by opening the Bible. We don't expect God to challenge us through his word or even through the wisdom of being in church community, being accountable to each other. Those who love us and shepherd us, that they might have something helpful but difficult to say. No, no, no. Nowadays, how much of even the average Christian's decision is based on, well, I've prayed about it and God's given me peace about that decision, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Is that how you make difficult decisions? I've prayed about it. I feel peace about it. Therefore, I'm just going to do it. And anything from the Bible that might shape that decision, both in terms of right and wrong, sometimes we make wrong decisions. The Bible clearly says God doesn't approve of that. And we're like, no, we prayed about it. I feel peace about it. So it's got to be right. But sometimes it's not right and wrong. It's just wisdom decisions. And we conveniently ignore that the Bible may have something to say about that. No, 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 no. I've prayed about it. I feel peace about it. And therefore, I'm just going to go and do it. Do you see what that is? Right? Again, it's making God come out of what suits us. His decisions, his guidance is completely about what feels right to us. Isn't that just how everyone in our culture makes decisions? How is that even different? How is that a reflection of the true and living God in relationship with him? Now, there's a lot of things that I've picked up, probably a lot that I haven't as well. You've got to think, how is this challenging me? Because I'll tell you what, this kind of thing, this is the sin of Micah and the sin of Dan. It, this is the, the problem of judges. It's doing what's right in your own eyes. And I hope you see today that it is dangerous that it has lasting consequences because God is not your plaything. He is not an image for you to make. And you can fool others, but you cannot fool God. Do you remember a few weeks ago when Pastor Don preached on Jephthah trying to pull one over on God? It's the same kind of idea, right? We do that all the time. We, we try to fool ourselves, fool others, but we cannot fool God. Friends, I wonder if God is saying to you something today that you might need to confess and repent about. Well, let me close with the solution. What is the solution? If that's the problem, what's the solution? Well, remember, Israel's problem is this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Okay, the religious chaos here, the moral chaos, next chapters, has to do with a lack of kingship. Now, obviously, Judges was written or compiled at a time when the the, the, the nation was stable, when the kingship was good. And so from that perspective, yeah, this, that's a reason for the chaos. But I'll, I'll tell you what, not telling you anything you don't already know, the rest of the Old Testament will show that even that good, stable kingship wasn't going to last forever. In fact, it would have its own problems. And so human kingship was never going to be the long-term solution because the only solution is, of course, the kind of kingship where God is king, yeah? Yeah which means the kind of religion and worship where the king gets to tell us what to do, how to do it, and not the other way around. Tim Keller wrote this, and it's a really helpful quote. God says, 
Worship me as I am, not as you want me to be. And worship me as my heart directs, not as your heart suggests. So you see, the only solution to our problem is to walk closely with King Jesus. Jesus, who is God's perfect revelation of himself. Jesus, who is the perfect image of God in all of God's fullness. Jesus, who captures all of God's character, those parts we love, as well as those parts that make us feel uncomfortable. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus or you're still investigating, you're not sure, the best thing you can do to get to know God as he is, is to get to know Jesus. And we have a way of doing that. Um, You sort of have to wait until next year when we start a new Alpha dinner and uh, discussion thing. But please keep coming. Please ask us questions in the meantime. And please... Come enough so that when you hear about when we're going to kick off Alpha again next year, you get along to it because it's going to really help. But if you are, in fact, especially if you are a follower of Jesus, and that's probably most of you here today, well, you need to get to know him better, don't you? You need to ask yourself the question, is Jesus part of all of my life? Right? Not just when I'm at church or reading the Bible or a community group, is Jesus part of all of my life? Am I consciously walking with him, communing with him in all the parts of my day, with all of my thoughts and all of my hopes and all of my dreams and all of my anxieties and all of my decisions and all of my actions? Because guess what? That's exactly the kind of worship that he's looking for. On this side of Jesus, that's what worship is. It's not to go to a a temple or a special place or even a church building. That's no longer the place. There's no more priesthood, human priesthood. There's only Jesus who is the perfect priest. So the kind of worship that God has revealed that we do today as followers of Jesus is actually what Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says. It's our whole lives as living sacrifices, isn't it? It's our whole bodies. It's every part of our day, every element of our lives. That's true worship. So are you enjoying that, Christian? Is that a part of your day? Is worshiping Jesus a part of every part of your life, Monday all the way through to Sunday? You know, when Micah had his idols taken away, chapter 18, verse 24, you don't have to look it up, but he was actually crying out in despair. And these are his words, kind of tragic, but it's interesting. He says, you've now taken my priest, you've taken my idols, you've taken everything. And he says, what else do I have? And that, of course, is the cry of the idolater, right? Because whatever your idol There's always going to be a time when they will fail you and disappoint you and leave you empty. And without it, you will always cry, what else do I have? But you see, here it is. Jesus, if you have Jesus, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the great thing about worshiping Jesus. You will always have him. He will never disappoint. He will never leave you or fail you. He will never leave you empty. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Father, we pray that as we today look at false, DIY, perverted worship, that you would make us long to worship you as you deserve and worship you in a way that brings us the true fulfillment and joy. And so we repent of everything in our lives that is not like that, and we pray that you would fill us daily and hourly 
with the presence of the Lord Jesus through his spirit and through his word so that we can worship you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. And that will bring you glory and bring us joy. Amen.